be put under the categories of sila samadhi panya, morality, concentration, and wisdom. And in looking at the Eightfold Path, we found wisdom, sila, and samadhi as categories. There's another teaching that is a bit more elaborate than the Eightfold Path. Covers much the same material in detail. It's called the gradual training. And it shows up in approximately 30 suttas. There's about 30 different pieces in it. No sutta contains all 30 pieces. But the gradual training does seem to be a very early composition. And it's basically the the curriculum for the monks and nuns. You joined the Buddhist order, and this is what you did. So what I want to do tonight is share with you a sutta that perhaps is the one that's the most famous for showing the gradual training. It also shows the jhanas in context. And it's the sutta we've been talking about the last two nights. The second one in the Long Discourses, Dignikaya number two. The Samanya Pala Sutta. Uh, you could loosely translate the title as the Discourse on the Fruits of the Spiritual Life. So I'm going to give you my version of the sutta. Probably ought to go home and read the real version. You can find an excellent translation of the sutta at the suttacentral.net website. This has lots of suttas on it, almost all of them, in good translations in multiple languages. Uh, a little hard to navigate. You've got to start off by clicking the hamburger menu in the upper left-hand corner and figuring your way to the Diganikaya and you want the translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi. There are other translations that's available, but in general, his translations are the best. So I'm going to give you what I got. Thus have I heard. Once the Buddha was staying in Jipaka's mango grove with the company of 1,250 monks just outside the city of Rajagaha. Now Jipaka, who had given the mango grove to the Buddha to use as a monastery, was the royal physician in the court of King Ajitasattu, king of Magadha. Now the night of our sutta, it's the full moon. And when the full moon rises, King Ajitasattu is sitting on the upper terrace of his palace, surrounded by his ministers and other members of the court. And when he sees the rising full moon, he utters a joyful exclamation. Oh, what a beautiful night. Oh, what a wondrous night. Oh, what an auspicious night. Perhaps we could visit some recluse or Brahmin 
who can bring some peace to my mind. You see, King Ajisatu had a very unpeaceful mind. This was because he had killed his father, good King Bimbasara. King Bimbasara was one of the Buddha's very first patrons. The story goes that before Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha, he was on alms round in Rajagaha, and King Bimbasara is looking out of an upper window of his palace, and he sees this mendicant on alms round. who seems different from the usual mendicant. He has a more regal bearing. He calls some of his men over and says, see that recluse? Follow him. See where he goes, and then report back to me. And so, after he had finished his alms round, Siddhartha Gautama goes to Vulture's Peak, which is a mountain outside of Rajagaha that's studded with caves. Great place to go meditate. And so, two of the king's men stopped not far from where the Buddha was meditating, kept an eye on him, and one went back and told the king. And the king rode out and went to see Siddhartha Gautama. Inquired about his family, inquired about why he was doing what he was doing, was very impressed. Impressed enough that he offered Siddhartha Gautama a ministerial position in the court there in Rajagaha. Siddhartha Gautama was not interested in politics. He was looking for, well, how to deal with old age sickness and death, so he politely replied. But King Bimbasara got him to promise that if he figured it out, he'd come back and tell the king. And indeed, three years after his awakening, the Buddha returned to Rajagaha, gave a discourse to King Bimbasara, and King Bimbasara was established in the fruit of stream entry, meaning he attained the first level of awakening. And he became a great patron of the Buddha. But King Bimbasara had a son, Prince Ajitisattu. And Prince Ajitisattu was an ambitious man. He grew weary of waiting for his father to die and decided to take matters into his own hands. He strapped a dagger to his thigh and went sneaking into his father's private quarters where he was immediately apprehended by the guards. The guards hauled Prince Ajitasattu up before the king and said, Great king, we found your son sneaking into your private quarters and he had this dagger <coughs> strapped to his thigh. Son, why were you sneaking into my private quarters with a dagger strapped to your thigh? <laughs> I was going to kill you, Dad. <laughs> why do you want to kill me? I want your kingdom. Why didn't you just say so? Here, you can be king. King Bimbasara was quite happy to abdicate because that meant he could go practice meditation. He was much more interested in the spiritual path and was happy to turn his kingdom over to King Ajitasattu. So King Ajitasattu got to be king without having to kill his father, but he grew worried that his father was going to get bored with the meditation and want his kingdom back. So he ordered King Bimbasara thrown in the dungeon. 
couldn't bring himself to order his father killed, he just cut off all his food. He did allow one visitor, the queen. The queen was very shrewd. Before she could go see her husband, she would smear her body with honey, and the king could live by licking it off. When King Bimbasara wasn't dying, he nudges his eye to went to see him. Dad, how come you're not dead yet? <laughs> oh, when your mother comes to visit, she smears her body with honey, and I look by licking it off. In the visits from the queen. But still, King Bimbasara wasn't dying, so King Atisatu ordered him to torture. And during the torturing, he died. Commentaries tell us that two messages arrived at the palace simultaneously. The first message said that a son had been born to King Atisatu's queen. For the first time, King Ajitasatu knew of a father's love for his son. And he turned to his men and said, Release my father from prison. And they gave him the second message, which said that his father was dead. From that night on, King Ajitasatu had terrible nightmares. He would no sooner fall asleep than he'd wake up screaming. And of course his servants would rush in. Great king, great king, are you okay? I'm fine, fine, go away, go away. And he'd fall asleep and have another nightmare and wake up screaming. So on this full moon night, King Ajisatu has insomnia. He doesn't want to fall asleep. And if the king can't sleep, nobody gets to sleep. And so the ministers and Jivaka and other members of the court are all gathered around the king when he utters this joyful exclamation about wanting to visit some recluse or Brahmin who could bring some peace to his mind. And immediately, one of the ministers piped up, Great king, there's Puruna Kasapa. He's long gone forth. He's esteemed as holy. He has many followers. He's in the last phase of his life. You should visit him. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. King said nothing. Another minister pipes up. Great king, this Makali Gosala, he's long gone forth. He's esteemed as holy. He has, you get the picture, right? Each minister championing his recluse or Brahman. And the king saying nothing. After the hubbub finally calmed down, king turns to Jivaka. Jivaka, you know any reclusive Brahmin we might visit? Great king, Buddha, the perfectly awakened one, who teaches the Dhamma which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, is living in my mango grove with a company of 1,250 monks. You should visit the Buddha. Perhaps he can bring some peace to your mind. Prepare the elephant vehicles, Jivaka. <laughs> so Jivaka goes running down from the upper terrace of the palace, down to the stables below. And he has 500 female elephants saddled up, as, as well as the king's royal bull elephant. He goes running back up to the upper terrace of the palace. Great king, the elephant vehicles are prepared. Do as you see fit. Well, the king had 500 women of the court, seated one each on the 500 female elephants. 
and then the king and Jephika mounted up on the royal tusker, and they rode forth in full royal splendor with torchbearers going before. Must have been quite a sight on that full moon night. They rode out of the palace, then through the city of New Rajagaha, and then into the old city, and out the south gate, hung around, <laughs> headed towards the mango grove. And when they got near the mango grove, it was quiet. It was a little too quiet. Jivka, are you betraying me? Are you turning me over to my enemies? No, great king. Why would you think that? You said there's 1,250 people in this mango grove. I don't hear a sound. They're probably all meditating, great king. Look, you can see lights in the pavilion hall. Go forward, great king. Go forward. So they went as far as they could go on the elephants, and then they dismounted, the king and Jivaka, and all the women at the court, and they went up to the pavilion hall. The king is checking out the scenes, actually quite impressed. The monks are sitting there, as serene as can be. Looking at it, wow. Finally says, Oh, if only my son, the prince, could experience peace such as this. The Buddha overhears him and says, Great king, do your thoughts follow your affection? Indeed they do, venerable sir, indeed they do. I love my son, the prince, very much, and it would be wonderful if he could experience peace, such as the company of bhikkhus experience. And then the king saluted the Buddha, saluted the monks, and sat down at one side. Sitting there, he said, Venerable sir, may I ask you a question? Of course, great king, ask whatever you wish. Venerable sir, in my kingdom, there are people who practice many different crafts. There are elephant trainers, horse trainers, there are archers, spearmen, swordsmen, chainmail warriors, commandos, camp marshals, there are bakers, farmers, artisans, street sweepers, barbers, accountants, statisticians. Each of these practices his craft, and it's, pro and it's possible to see some fruit of their labor visible here and now. Venerable sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life that's visible here and now? Great King, have you ever asked this question of any other recluses or Brahmins? Yes, Venerable Sir, I actually I have. I've asked a half a dozen other recluses and Brahmins about this matter, but they just preach their doctrine at me. They never really got around to answering the question. It was like asking for a mango and being given a breadfruit. Most unsatisfying. But I never said anything. So I ask you again, Venerable Sir, can you point out any fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great King, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your kingdom, in your palace, there's a slave, a workman, who arises before you each morning, waits on you hand and foot all day long, see that all of your needs are met, doesn't go to bed till after you go to bed. Suppose this slave were to think, 
It is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds. For this king, Atatasattu, is a man and I am a man. And yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god, while I wait on him hand and foot from morning to night. Perhaps I too should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some later time this slave were to shave off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robes, and go forth from the home life to the homeless life. Upon learning of this, would you send your soldiers saying, make that man come back and be my slave? Oh no, venerable sir. We would rise up before him. We would prepare a seat. We would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great king, is this not a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes, yes it is, venerable sir. Venerable sir, can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Great king, I will ask you a question. Answer as you see fit. Suppose in your kingdom there's a farmer who toils in his fields from morning to night. And then when it's harvest time, he winds up paying a large portion of the harvest as taxes to support the royal treasury. Suppose this farmer were to grow weary of paying taxes. Suppose he were to think, it is wonderful, it is marvelous, the destiny of meritorious deeds. For this king, Ajitasattu, is a man, and I am a man, and yet he enjoys the five strands of sense pleasures as though he were a god. Well, I work in my fields from morning to night, and then wind up paying a large portion of my harvest as taxes to the royal treasury. Maybe I, too, should do meritorious deeds. Great king, suppose at some later point this farmer shaves off his hair and beard, puts on the yellow robe, goes forth from the home life to the homeless life. Upon learning of this, would you send your men saying, make that man come back and be a farmer, so he can support the royal treasury? Oh no, venerable sir, we would rise up before him, we would prepare a seat, we would see to his food, clothing, shelter, and medicinal requirements. We would provide for him righteous protection. Great King, is this not also a fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now? Yes. Yes, it is, Venerable Sir. Venerable Sir, can you point out any other fruit of the spiritual life visible here and now, but more wondrous and more sublime than these? Listen, Great King, and pay attention. A Tathagata arises in this world, a fully awakened Buddha, who teaches the Dhamma, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. A householder or a household child of some other person hears the Dhamma and gains faith in the Buddha. And at some point thinks, household life is crowded and dusty, going forth is free like the air. And then that householder or householder's child or other person shapes off hair and beard puts on the yellow robe, and joins the Tathagata's order. Great King, when one joins the Tathagata's order, one lives restrained by the precepts, the rules of behavior. First of these rules, Great King, is I undertake the training 
to refrain from killing living beings. The second of these rules is, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. There are many rules, great king. We are celibate. We tell the truth. We don't engage in harsh or abusive language. We are peacemakers rather than causing division. We don't engage in gossip or idle chatter. We don't take intoxicants. We eat only in one part of the day. We don't adorn ourselves or go to singing or dancing shows. We don't sleep on high or luxurious beds. We don't handle gold or silver. Many rules great king. By keeping these rules, it makes it possible to live with senses guarded. When one sees a sight with the eye, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states, such as greed or aversion, overcome one. When one hears a sound with the ear, smells a smell with the nose, tastes a taste with the tongue, touches a texture with the body, thinks the thought with the mind, one does not grasp at the signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states overcome one. Living with senses guarded makes it possible to be mindful of all that we do. Mindful when going forward and coming back. Mindful when looking forward and looking back. Mindful when wearing the robe and carrying the alms bowl. Mindful when going on alms round. Mindful when eating, chewing, swallowing, and savoring. Mindful when going to the toilet. Mindful when walking, standing, sitting, lying down. Mindful when speaking and keeping silent. Mindful when falling asleep and waking up. Great King, we also are content with little. All that we need is food, clothing, shelter, and medicine if we're ill. This leaves us free to go wherever we want, just like a bird on the wing. Great King, with these noble precepts, this noble restraint of the senses, this noble mindfulness, and this noble contentment, it makes it possible to do the work of a recluse. Having returned from alms round, having eaten the midday meal, one resorts to a secluded dwelling, the root of a tree, the forest, a heap of straw, the open air, a charnel ground. One sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and sets up mindfulness before oneself. Great King, when practicing meditation, there are five states of mind that can arise that hinder progress on the spiritual path. The first of these hindrances is sensual desire. Great King, sensual desire is like being in debt. If someone is in debt, they must continually work to pay off the debt. If someone is overcome with sensual desire, they must continually work to find more sense pleasures because no sense pleasure is ultimately satisfied. But if someone were to pay off a debt, they would rejoice and become glad. 
In the same way, if one can overcome sensual desire, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. The second of these hindrances, great king, is ill will and hatred. Ill will and hatred is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well. You're hot, you can't think straight, you can't do what you want to do. If you're overcome with ill will and hatred, you don't feel well. You're hot, you can't think straight, you can't do what you want to do. But if someone were physically ill and were to take medicine and regain his health, he would rejoice and become glad in the same way. If one can overcome ill will and hatred, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. Third of these hindrances, great king, sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor is like being in a prison. If you're in a prison, you just sit there, missing out on all the good things of life. If you're overcome with sloth and torpor, you just sit there, missing out on all the good things of the spiritual life. But if a prisoner were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad in the same way. If one can overcome sloth and torpor, even temporarily, one rejoices and becomes glad. For who these hindrances, great king, is restlessness and remorse. Restlessness and remorse is like being a slave. <laughs> slave is always busy, but only doing what the master commands. Go there, do that, come here, do this, never getting to do what the slave wants to do. It's the same with restlessness and remorse. One's body can't get settled, one's mind is all over the place, one can't do the practice one wants to do. But if a slave were to gain his freedom, he would rejoice and become glad. In the same way, if one can overcome restlessness and remorse, one rejoices and becomes glad. Fifth of these hindrances, great king, is skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt is like being on a perilous desert journey where bandits abound and provisions are scarce. First you think to go this way, but no, there'll be bandits for sure. Maybe better to go this way, but no, there won't be any provisions. One does more starting and stopping than actual progressing. It's the same with skeptical doubt. First one tries one practice and then tries another and never follows through on anything to see where it actually leads. <coughs> But if someone on a perilous desert journey were to arrive at a place of safety, they would rejoice and become glad. If someone can overcome skeptical doubt, even temporarily, they rejoice and become glad. Great King, when one sees that these five hindrances are not abandoned, one regards that as being in debt, as being physically ill, as being in prison, as being a slave, as a desert room. But when one sees that these five hindrances are abandoned, one regards that as freedom from death, good health, freedom from prison, release from slavery, <coughs> and a place of safety. Thus secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first job, which is with speaking and examining, and is filled with rapture and happiness born of seclusion. One drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, 
Think of a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice, taking a metal basin and pouring in just the right amount of soap flakes and then just the right amount of water and mixing the soap flakes and water until there is a homogeneous ball of soap that does not trickle. In the same way, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King. This is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. For the Great King, <coughs> with the subsiding of thinking and examining, and by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, one enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is without thinking and examining, and contains rapture and happiness born of concentration. One drinks deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, so that there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, imagine a lake far up in the mountains where there are no streams coming in from the east, the west, the north, or the south. And they're not even showers of rain. And yet at the bottom of this lake, there's a spring of cool, clear water. The cool, clear water would totally permeate the lake, such that there would be no part of that lake not deep and saturated with the cool, clear water. In the same way, great king, one drinks deep, saturates and squeezes one's body, the rapture and happiness born of concentration such that there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, Great King, with the fading away of rapture, remaining mindful, clearly comprehending, and equanimous, one enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the Noble Ones declare, happy is one who is equanimous and mindful. One experiences happiness free from rapture. One drinks deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with its happiness free from rapture, so that there is no part of one's body not suffused with happiness. Great King, imagine a lotus pond in which there are growing blue, white, or red lotuses that grow up out of the mud, but do not come above the surface of the water. These lotuses would be leaving their entire lives filled with water from their tips to their roots. In the same way, one drinks deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with a happiness free from rapture, so that there is no part of one's body not filled with happiness. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. Further, great king, passing of pleasure and pain as with the previous passing, joy and grief, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana, a state beyond pleasure and pain that contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. One sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind such that there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. Great King, imagine a man covered from the head down with a white sheet, such that his body is totally suffused by the white sheet. 
In the same way, one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind. So there is no part of one's body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. Great King, this too is a fruit of the spiritual life, a little here and now, more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. For the Great King, with a mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, valuable, wielding, and given to imperturbability, one directs and inclines it to knowing and seeing. One understands, this is my body, made of material form, composed of the four great elements, born of mother and father, fed on rice and gruel, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, which is bound up with it and supported by it. Great King, insights such as these into the nature of reality are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. For the Great King, mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one can direct and incline it to the various supernormal powers. One can create a mind-made body. <coughs> One can wield the psychic powers of walking on water, diving into the earth, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded. Being one, one becomes many. Being many, one becomes one. One can appear and disappear at will. One can fly cross-legged through the sky like a bird. One can wield mastery over the body as far as the Brahmanas. One can also hear sounds at a great distance. One can know the minds of others. One can remember past lives. One can see beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Great King, supernormal powers such as these are also fruits of the spiritual life, visible here and now, more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. For the Great King with the mind thus concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, magical, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, one can direct and incline it to the ending of the asavas, the intoxicants. One can understand this is dukkha. This is the origin of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of dukkha. These are the asavas. This is the origin of the asavas. This is the cessation of the asavas. Is the path of practice that leads to the cessation of the asavas. And one can follow that path of practice and make an end to the asava, the intoxicant of sense desire. Make an end to the asava of becoming. Make an end to the asava of ignorance. And in so doing, great king, one makes an end to dukkha. Great king. This too is a fruit of the spiritual life, visible here and now, and more wondrous and more sublime than the previous. And furthermore, great king, there is no fruit of the spiritual life more wondrous and more sublime than this.
king was impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, marvelous. <laughs> it's like bringing a light into a dark room so that those who have eyes can see. It's like pointing out the way to one who is lost. It's like setting upright something that's been knocked down. I go for refuge to the Buddha and to the Dharma and to the Bhikkhu Sangha. May the Buddha please consider me a lay follower from this day forth. And then King Ajatasattu got all shamefaced. And finally he blurted out, A transgression overcame me, venerable sir. For the sake of rulership, I killed my father, a righteous man and a righteous king. Indeed, great king, a transgression did overcome you in that you killed your father, a righteous man and a righteous king. But it is good that you acknowledge such a transgression for the sake of your restraint in the future. <clears throat> and then King Ajatasattu said, We must be going. We have many things to do. Do as you see fit, great king. So the king saluted the Buddha, saluted the monks, circumambulated the Buddha, and then keeping the Buddha on his right, went back where the elephants are. He and Jivaka and all the women of the court, they mounted up and rode back to the palace. And not long after the king departed, Buddha said to the monks, this king has ruined himself. This king has destroyed himself. If he had not killed his father, a righteous man and a righteous king, then the stainless eye of Dhamma would have opened in him tonight, and he would have attained the first level of awakening. This king has destroyed himself. He's ruined himself. And the monks were very pleased with all that the Buddha taught. Now the sutta ends here. The commentaries go on to say that King Ajatasattu went back to the palace and had his first good night's sleep since his father died. And he did indeed become a great protector of the Dhamma. After the Buddha's death, three months later, 500 fully enlightened disciples of the Buddha came together to codify the Buddha's teaching, the precepts for the monks and nuns, and the suttas. And the place they chose to gather was in a cave just outside the city of Rajagaha. They obviously felt under the protection of King Ajatasattu. But King Ajatasattu was an ambitious man. After the Buddha's death, he set out on wars of conquest and conquered all the neighboring kingdoms and built the nucleus of the first great Indian Empire. But not all went well for King Ajatasattu. You see, his son killed him. <laughs> and his grandson killed his son. And his great-grandson killed his grandson. And his great-great-grandson killed his great-grandson. And at that point, the people of Magadha said, enough of these father killers. They killed the last of the line and established a new dynasty. <coughs> Any questions? <laughs> okay, so, did you see the Sila Samadhi Panya parts of the Sutta? Right? The ethics, 
Right, so the precepts regarding the senses, mindfulness, content with little, all this is creating the lifestyle that's supporting of the spiritual path. And then one starts the meditation practice and abandons the hindrances and practices sajanas. That's the samadhi. And then the panya, the insight into mind and body, right? That produces wisdom. I don't know about the supernormal powers. <laughs> the overcoming of the asapas, though, these intoxicants. This is definitely the goal of the spiritual path. This is the ultimate wisdom, to see things so clearly that one completely lets go. And in so doing, makes an end to all dukkha. The word asapa is a very interesting word. It occurs in the Jain religion, another of the religions at the time of the Buddha. And there the meaning was the influx. And it was basically that in the Jain religion, you had to clean up your karma. Whatever actions that you did, it left resultants that were influxes into who you were, and you had to get all that cleaned up so that you wouldn't come back. The Buddha takes the word asava and uses it more in its original meaning. It originally meant the secretion from a plant. In particular, think of the secretion from a poppy plant, an intoxicant. And so there's the intoxicant of sense desire becoming an ignorance. I heard a talk by Eric Colvin one time. He said, samsara is not really a wheel. It's a drunken party in a casino. <laughs> Our job is to sober up, find the exit, and get out. <laughs> and we know what they're serving as intoxicants. Since desire becoming an ignorance. Right? So this is, this is what we're after. We want to get a firm foundation of sila. The precepts, guard the senses, be mindful. Be content with little, then do our concentration practice, and then investigate reality and get enough insight that we gain so much wisdom that the intoxicants no longer have a hold of us. We can find the exit and get out. So, questions? Uh, the part about the mystical powers. Authentic, do you think it is, or was this an end Yeah, it's quite interesting about the supernormal powers that show up in the gradual training. So on my website, I made a chart of all the suttas that contain at least parts of the gradual training, and all the items that show up. And you can see which suttas contain which parts. The supernormal powers don't show up in all versions. Uh, there are a couple of suttas that would tend to indicate that, yeah, these are probably added later. There's Diganikaya number 11, the Kevata Sutta. Kevata was a layman, and he comes to the Buddha and says, hey, send the monks into town to do some, you know, 
walking on water, flying through the air, knowing the minds of others. <coughs> but it says that's not how we teach Dhamma. That he says these are not important. These are actually not to be practiced. And then there he teaches the gradual training, and he doesn't mention the supernormal powers in that particular sutta. And there are other suttas where the supernormal powers in the long discourses are not mentioned, as well as some where they are mentioned. So maybe they got stuffed in. There's also a very interesting sutta in the numerical discourses, Anguttara 360. And in that sutta, a Brahman and the Buddha are having a conversation, and they're talking about miracles. And the Brahmin says, you know, what about these miracles? And the Buddha says, well, there's three miracles. There's walking on water, flying through the air, this whole collection of psychic powers, supernormal powers. And then there's knowing the minds of others as the second miracle. And the Brahmin goes, but yeah, these are like, uh, they're, they're only benefit the one who performs them. It sounds like they're a private experience. And the Buddha agrees. Yeah, they only benefit the one who performs them. The third miracle is the miracle of instruction, and that benefits others. Then if we examine the supernormal powers, what have we got? So the first one is the mind-made body. Everybody got that? Okay, so what's the mind-made body? Well, from this body you create another body, complete in all of its part, not defective in any sense organ. Right? Okay, so there's, there's some similes. The simile says, this is a sword, this is a scabbard, you pull the sword out of the scabbard. This is a snake, this is a skin, you pull the snake out of the skin. This is a reed, this is a sheath, you pull the reed out of the sheath. Is it clear now? No. <laughs> oh. right. Let's set that aside for just a moment. That's always the first one when it occurs. And then what occurs after it is the collection of what you might call yeah, uh, supernormal powers, such as walking a water flying through the air, etc. It was in Portugal teaching, and I was talking to one of my students, who I actually became very good friends with, and he was talking about lucid dreaming. And he happened to mention that there's a technique called wake-induced lucid dreaming, W-I-L-D, wild, that allows you to go directly from a waking state into a lucid dream without having to fall asleep, start dreaming, realize you're dreaming, and then have the lucid dream. Uh, so, of course, I looked up we can do lucid dreaming on the Google, and it turns out the mind state you need to generate is very much like what you have coming out of jhana number four. Right? So, I'm going to say that the mind-made body is wake induced lucid dreaming. Going to, you learn to go directly from a waking state into a lucid dream where you can, well, what are you supposed to do in a lucid dream? Well, 
fly through the air, walk on water, pass through walls and ramparts, unimpeded, etc. So I'm going to say the first two of the supernova powers are actually learning to lucid dream on demand and then performing these feats in your lucid dream because they only benefit the one who performs them. The next two, hearing sounds at a great distance and knowing the minds of others. Well, that's ESP, extrasensory perception, right? Whatever ESP is, it's clairaudience and clairvoyance. Science says it can't find ESP right? But when I say ESP, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, whatever ESP is does seem to be enhanced by practicing the jhanas. Now, whether ESP is just simply not being very good at probability or picking up subtle cues or there really is something, but it's too subtle for our current science to notice. Doesn't matter. It's ESP for those things. People talk about it, report it, and so forth. And it does get enhanced if you have a concentrated mind. I went to Ayakima at one point and I said, Aya, you know, my, my ESP seems to be enhanced when I'm on retreat practicing jhanas. And she laughed and she said, yeah, we all notice <laughs> so whatever it is, it gets enhanced with a concentrated mind. We don't have to decide what it is. It's just whatever it is, it gets enhanced if your mind is well concentrated. Well, that takes care of two more. And then this is the last two. Remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and realizing according to their karma. Now, this is supposed to be what the Buddha did in the first and second watch of the night, right? So it says for the first watch of the night, it literally says, the Buddha remembered previous dwellings. Use the word lives there, it says dwellings. And then it says one life, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand. <laughs> Many eons of world expansion, many eons of world contraction, many eons of world expansion and contraction. Well, since I have a degree in mathematics, I'm like, let's run the numbers, right? So we don't have numbers for eons, but we do have 100,000. And we know, okay, three watches of the night, India's down by the equator, so that means days and nights are about the same length, 12 hours. So three watches, four hours. So 100,000 into four hours. You can do that in your head, I'm sure, right? Uh, One-seventh of a second per life. And furthermore, in that one-seventh of a second, it's necessary to remember name, plan, pleasure, pain, food, uh, Three other things. There's eight things you've got to remember in a seventh of a second. That means you're going to have to know 56 things a second. Turns out neuroscience says that absolute max the human brain can do is 40 things in a second. And you can't say, but he's the Buddha, because that's not going to happen for another eight hours, right? Okay, so I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't take this too literally, right? And then 
seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. Okay, so this is the middle of the night. You got the Buddha sitting there, meditating. He's looking around, he sees some guy die, and then he follows his whatever to this couple having sex, right? And then he watches this other person die, and the, that couple... Can you picture the Buddha sitting there for four hours doing that? This doesn't work for me, I'm sorry. In his book, After Buddhism, Stephen Batchelor devotes a page or two to talking about this. He says, the Buddha, in talking about remembering past lives and karma, is trying to get the what he understands as the huge impact of our actions, to, to get a bigger picture of karma. He's talking to people in a culture where most people believe in reincarnation. And so to give his message the biggest possible impact, what he says is, okay, karma has played out over many lifetimes for me personally, and it plays out over many lifetimes for everyone. And I think this is a very good way to put this out there. So I wouldn't take any of this supernormal stuff literally. Um, I've certainly met people who claim various supernormal powers, but I never saw any of them walking the water or flying through the air. You know, if you want me to believe that, you know, just you know, give me a demonstration. I'm not asking for much, right? So here's my long take on your question. Other question. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Don't thank me. Thank the Buddha. <laughs> well, the way that you told it. Yes. What about the twenty-something characteristics of a Buddha? Is that Mahayana or? The thirty-two marks of the Buddha. Thirty-two marks of the Buddha. That's Brahmanism, actually. Okay. So Brahmanism, the dominant religious paradigm at the time, had this idea of the 32 marks of the great man. And the Buddha supposedly had these marks. Now, when you read the 32 marks, your only possible response is, boy, he was a weird-looking dude. <laughs> okay? He was able to stand upright and scratch his knees without bending over. Right? Uh, he had really long calves and really short thighs. Uh, his arm span was the same as his height, which most people's is. Uh, he had flat feet. He had webbed fingers and toes. Uh, he, when he walked, he left footprints that had the circle of a wheel in his footprints. I mean, the list goes on and is absolutely ridiculous. I'm quite certain this was put in later. You see, after the Buddha died, Buddhism needed to curry favor from the powers that be, the kings, right? And so each religion that was around needed to get patronage from the kings. 
And so they had to build up their religion and run down the other religions. And so what better way to build up Buddhism than to say, well, yeah, the Buddha, he matches all the marks of this other Brahmanism, and he had all this other stuff in between, besides. Whereas the Brahmins, you know, they say their guy just had these marks, but our guy could teach as well. And so you find lots of suttas that are building up the Buddha until he becomes a mythical character. Uh, fire and water coming out of his hands and, you know, all this other stuff. And you find suttas that are running down other religions. I would say that, you know, looking at sutta archaeology, that all those suttas are later compositions. That they're part of Buddhism struggling to maintain itself in the competition of all these other religions looking for a royal favor. And so the 32 bars got introduced that way. Is there a, is there a resource showing the earliest suttas to the latest suttas in order? <laughs> I wish there was. <laughs> okay, so two things to recommend. The first is a book by Govind C. Pandi, P-A-N-D-E, entitled Studies in the Origins of Buddhism. It's his PhD thesis from an Indian university in the early 50s. And among other things in there, it's actually an interesting book, he goes through all of the suttas and he puts them into four categories. Early, late, composite, and don't know. You want to guess which is the big category? <laughs> don't know. Right? But it's interesting to look at that and see what suttas he does put in the early category and what suttas he puts in the late category. I wouldn't say I agree with everything that he does. Some of the ones that he says are composite, I'm going, yeah, all right, parts of them are early and parts of it late. And some of them that he says are late, I'm like, no, I think actually this is kind of early. And most of the stuff he says early, I'm tending to agree with him. The only problem with the book is it badly needs an editor. Uh, it's in its fourth edition, and the preface to the, I think it's the third edition, he writes something like, well, I'm really surprised there's this much interest in this. I went through the book, and I didn't really see much that needed to be changed. I'm just happy this new edition's coming out. I'm going, get an editor, get an editor. <laughs> the only way to use it is to read a sutta and then find what he says in the book. However, it's terribly badly organized. Uh, for each of the Nikayas, he organizes them by early, late, composite, don't know. And then he talks about each of the suttas. So I had to have, when I'm, I'm reading the long discourses, I had to have four markers in the book. So I read one, and then i got to look through the markers so I find the one and what he says about it. And, but it was interesting to do that. Um, so that's resource number one. There actually is a free PDF version of the book online, but it's impossible to search because it's just pictures of the pages as opposed to being actual digital letters and words. So, and just reading through it, uh, yeah, it doesn't really work that well. It's better to read the sutta, think about what you think it is, early, late, whatever, 
and then look up and see whether you agree with him or not. The other thing is much better. It's called A History of Mindfulness by Bhikkhu Sujato, and there's actually a link to that PDF from my website. And it's actually quite a, a very good book. And it's basically the one I get when I give you the history of mindfulness, uh, the history of the Satipatthana Sutta, I was drawing on that very heavily. In that, he goes into what are the criteria for deciding what's early and late. So it's not so much a list of what's early and late, but it gives you a sense of what there is. I also did a course at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies on Sutta archaeology. And over the course of, I guess, three days, something like that, we took a look at a bunch of suttas, and I gave my opinion as to whether I felt this sutta was early or late. And particularly, we looked at suttas that described the Buddha, we looked at suttas that described the Dharma, we looked at suttas that described the Sangha. It's quite an interesting thing to do, but yeah, uh, Christianity has the Jesus product, uh, project and other things that are trying very much to do this for the Bible. Uh, Buddhism is just barely getting started on that, and uh, there's just not a lot of material out there on it that I know of. I was interested in the part where the Buddha said the king had ruined himself. Right. And the monks said, yeah, okay, we're happy with that. No, the monks were happy with what he taught. Well, with what he taught? Right. Well, it's just the line at the end of almost all Sudhas. And the monks were very pleased oh, okay. with all that the Buddha said. <laughs> okay. okay. It wasn't so that, that in particular. That's, it's just there. It's not referring oh, just okay. to that. Right. Okay. I changed it slightly to all that the Buddha taught so that people wouldn't make the mistake you just made. Uh, okay, so why, what's that about? Right, at the time of the Buddha, it was considered that there were five heinous crimes. If you committed one of these crimes, you punched your ticket to hell. Right, there was no redemption. Killing your mother, killing your father, attempting to kill a Buddha, killing an arhat, or creating a schism in the Sangha. Right? So poor old King Ajitsatu had killed his father. It's also said that if one attains the stainless eye of Dhamma, or a stage of awakening, extreme entry, then one cannot be reborn in one of the lower realms. So because he killed his father, he had to go to hell next, and therefore he couldn't become a stream enterer. Now that's the, the orthodox way of explaining it. The commentaries tell us that King Ajitsatu was born in the hell of copper cauldrons, which is this giant cauldron that's boiling. And it takes 40,000 years to sink down to the bottom of it, and then 40,000 years to rise back up to the top of it. And then King Ajitsatu will die and be reborn in the human realm, and then become a Pacheka Buddha, a Buddha who doesn't teach, because he was such a great protector of the Dharma. But that's the common reason. You're full of all sorts of stuff. What I'm thinking, though, is that the Buddha recognized that 
King Ajisatu wasn't the least bit interested in the spiritual path. He wanted some peace of mind if he could get that, but he wanted to go conquer all of his neighbors and create an empire. And so the Buddha is saying, yeah, this guy is so ambitious that he killed his father. He has the intellectual smarts to understand the Dharma, but his ambition is blinding him. Stainless eye of Dhamma is not going to cope. And I think that's probably a more accurate way to interpret what's said there. But he repented. He repented. But because he had killed his father, he punched the ticket. Okay. He repented from killing his father, but he didn't repent from his ambition. The uh, 16th Sutta in the Long Discourses is the Maha. Parinibbana Sutta, the great discourse on the passing of the Buddha. And it opens with King Ajatasattu sending one of his ministers to the Buddha and telling the minister, go see the Buddha and tell the Buddha, I will smite the Vijans and take their republic from them. And let me know what the Buddha says. And so, the minister goes to the Buddha and says, King Ajatasattu says, and the Buddha turns to Ananda and says, Ananda, you, have you heard that the Vijans meet in harmony, wake up in harmony, discuss things in harmony? Yes, Venerable Sir. And I think as long as they do that, they're safe. So the minister reports this back to King Ajatasattu, and King Ajatasattu buys Facebook ad, no, wait, nobody else. He interferes in their politics. He sends spies to break up their meetings, to cause dissension, to, well, we get, we get the picture, and they start squabbling with each other, and King Ajatasattu invades and takes them over after the Buddha's death. So the Buddha was correct. This guy wasn't interested in the spiritual path. He was interested in conquest. And he conquered all of the neighboring kingdoms before his son killed him. Anything else? Was the body standing in the top most much during that time, or is it a newer creation? Is the body scanned from that time, or is it a newer creation? We can trace it back to the late 19th century in Burma. Okay, so it's a fairly new practice. However, the parts of the body goes back to the Buddha. The thing I read out, um, <coughs> one says, this is head, hairs, body, hairs, nails, teeth, skin. And in a sense, those first five is the surface body scan. Interestingly enough, when someone becomes a novice monk at the ordination ceremony, the first practice they are given is those five. Scan your body and notice body hairs, uh, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin, which is very similar to the body scan that we're doing. So you could push it and say there's a version of it that comes from the time of the Buddha and was incorporated into the ordination ceremony. But the way we have it uh, from Gawenka and Ubakin and so forth 
that actually comes from northern Burma, probably at the end of the 19th century. So, yeah, maybe 120 years old. So, this, was it the Ubakin who originated it, or his teacher? So, the learned it from Ubakin. Ubakin learned it from a former farmer who lived across the Irrawaddy River from Rangoon who had some very serious reversals. Uh, his family died or his crops failed or something. And he was thinking of committing suicide, but he went to see a monk and this monk taught it to him. And then he taught it to Ubakin. <coughs> that monk had learned it from uh, Lady Sayadaw. L-E-D-Y, not L-A-D-E, Lady Sayadaw. And Lady Sayadaw had learned it up in Mandalay and brought it down uh, to the Rangoon area in the early 20th century. And so it was already in existence in the last part of the 19th century. So it's at least 120 years old and maybe a couple of hundred years old, but it doesn't show up in any of the ancient commentaries or anything like that. So let's say it's maybe 200 years old. Anything else? Okay, we're going to take a very short, no, we're not even going to take a short break. I'm going to do a very quick Please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. a good thing when you're happy? You like it when you're happy? Can you get in touch with the fact that you like it when you're happy? Do you like it when your friends are happy? Is that also a good thing? Isn't it really nice when your friends are happy? May they be happy. What about your acquaintances? Nice when they're happy. What if everybody you ran into at work or your neighbors, people you ran into in stores and restaurants, what if they were all happy? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, may they be happy. What if the difficult people in your life were happy? Happy because of karmically wholesome stuff they've done. It might not be so difficult. Yeah. May the difficult people find some wholesome happiness. What if everybody in this room was happy? That'd be pretty nice. 
What if everybody here at Oakwood was happy? Yeah. Certainly be nice if they were happy. What about all the neighbors around here? What if everybody in the Midwest was happy? What would that be like? Everyone in North America was happy. Think what your life would be like. Everybody you run into is happy. What if everybody on the planet was happy? Wow. That'd be really, really good. All beings everywhere. 